in verse 39 to many more in verse 41. Now, guys, it's important to note the contrast. Guys, as we're reading, and I, and I hope you're grasping this, because, again, the Word of God is not boring. The Word of God is exciting. But we need to read the Word of God in, in context. We need to understand that this is flowing into this, and that's connected to this, and so on and so forth. And they're not just disconnected. We're not saying, well, I'm done with that chapter. I have nothing more to do with that chapter. No, they're all connected. You could connect the dots. And I'll tell you, guys, there's a theme there's a theme that's ordained by the Spirit of God. And a theme that we're seeing in John's Gospel account is the contrast between the most unlikely people believing and receiving in Christ while his own people did not believe him or receive him. Do you remember the beginning of John's gospel account, John chapter 1, verse 11, he came to his own and his own did not receive him. Jesus was a Jew in his incarnation. He came to the Jewish people. Uh, in Matthew's account, he makes it clear, I've, I've come to the lost sheep of Israel. That was his focus group. That was his ministry to the lost sheep of Israel. But his own people, they rejected him. And yet we see this contrast. The Samaritans, they accepted him, they received him, while his own people rejected him. So as we read just a few moments ago, the testimony of the Samaritan woman, it was simple yet effective. She said, come see a man, this is verse 29, come see a man who told me all things I ever did. That piqued the interest of the men of the, of the city. And then she asked the question, could this be the Christ? And that was you know, done deal. We're going out. We're going to go out. We're going to meet him. We're going to hear him. We're going to, we're going to question him. I mean, you know, and, and remember that the woman who was speaking did not have a good reputation in their city. And so we see in verse 42 that when they came out themselves, they heard Jesus. They were convinced. And guys, if we're not paying attention, we will miss the wow moments of the scripture. And this is one of those wow moments of the scripture in verse 42. We know that this is indeed the Christ, the Savior of the world. Guys, if you're familiar with the gospel accounts, you know that not many people believe that he was the Christ, the Savior of the world. Not even his own disciples believe that he was the Christ, the Savior of the world. I mean, they just had such a hard time grasping who Jesus really is and what he came to accomplish, and so on. And so when you have this group of people, Samaritan people, hated by the Jews, they hate the Jews, you know, this animosity between the two groups, and yet they so easily, by simply listening to the words of Jesus, just listening to Jesus speak, they conclude, this is the Christ, this is the Savior of the world. Do you know what we don't have, by the way? We don't have the words of Jesus spoken to the Samaritans. We don't have a teaching. We don't have, we don't have, then Jesus taught this, and boy, this was, you know, the deal, uh, the thing that really, you know, finalized the whole thing for them. We have no idea what Jesus spoke to them, only that he did speak to them, and they were convinced. Now we believe not because of what you said. They said to the woman, guys, listen, true faith, and this is really important, true faith 
always moves to its own experience and its own relationship with Jesus. You know, you could have godly parents, you could have a godly wife, you could have a godly husband. They're always praying, they're always reading the word, they believe upon the Lord with all their heart. It's not just world, word service, you know, there's a lot of people who profess to be Christians, but boy, when the rubber meets the road, it's, it's really just words, they fall flat. But you could have someone in your life who is a person of faith in the Lord. And you could see the fruit of that fruit, uh, of that faith in their life. And yet, their faith cannot save you. You have to have your own faith. You have to have your own relationship with the Lord. So verse 23, look what it says. Now after the two days, he, that's Jesus, departed from there and he went to Galilee. For Jesus himself testified that a prophet has no honor in his own country. Now, guys, if you're a student of the word of God, you know that Jesus had made this statement before. And in the times where he made the statement before, it indicated that he was among a people who really, they just were not going to receive him. He is, he is, he is so well known by the people, like when he was in Nazareth. Isn't this the carpenter's son? Isn't his mother Mary? Aren't his brothers and sisters here with us? We know everything there is to know about him. He's a prophet. See, that's as far as they went. They couldn't even get to where the Samaritans were. He's the Christ. He is the savior of the world. And you would think that that's where Jesus was going. As you read the text, as you're just simply reading the text, and it says, for Jesus himself testified that a prophet has no honor in his own country, but he doesn't say that. He says, so when he came to Galilee, the Galileans received him. Well, Lord, then, John, why did you even record that? Why did you even record that Jesus said a prophet has no honor in his own country. Why would you even give that reference? Pay attention, guys, to what's, what follows. Look what it says. So he came to Galilee, and the Galileans received him, having seen all things he did in Jerusalem at the feast, for they also had gone to the feast. They received him because they saw what he had done. What's this referring to? What's when he went into the temple courts there and he drove out the money changers and, you know, those selling doves and lambs and all of that, drove them out. And they were impressed by that, you know. Well, that, that's impressive, you know. So let's receive him. Let's see what else he might have to say. Or maybe they received him because they were afraid he might do something like that in their town, you know. You say, Dan, you're trying to make a point. I'm not trying to make a point, but the Holy Spirit is trying to make a point. And the point is this, there is a contrast. This is why when we read the scriptures, we need the spirit of God to be our teacher so that we might glean from the word of God. There's a contrast. There's always a contrast in the scriptures. There's a contrast between the Samaritans who believed, having not seen one miracle. They simply heard him. They simply heard his word and they believed in him. And they believed to a degree that no others had up to this point. He is the Christ. He is the Savior of the world. Contrasted with the 
people of Galilee, because remember, that's where Jesus did the majority of his ministry. The people of Galilee, well, they had seen many things. They had seen Jesus do many, many things, and yet they would not believe. This tells me something. You know, we, we live in an interesting time in church history, and I, I've seen it, you know, over the decades that I've walked with Jesus. It's interesting to watch how some Christians are always chasing they're chasing signs and wonders. Um, oh, there's something happening over here. Oh, let's go check that out, man. We've got to check this out. And they're chasing signs and wonders. Do you know what the Bible teaches? The Bible teaches that signs and wonders followed the believers. Not the believers following the signs and wonders. So it's completely backwards today in our culture. But we see this quite often. Oh, if I could see, if I could go to this location, if I could get that blessing, I could bring that back to my congregation, you know, and impart this blessing on others. And I'll tell you guys, it's not just in the Gospels. It wasn't just Jesus. The Apostle Paul dealt with the same thing. He said of the Jews, they're, they're always seeking a sign. Show us a sign so that we might believe. He says the Greeks... The preaching of the cross, it's foolishness to them because they were all into their head, you know. How foolish, how, what, how could this make any difference whatsoever? Paul knew his audience. He knew who he's dealing with. He knew what drove people, what attracted people. Now, guys, when you look at the scriptures, it's apparent that if we're believers, even though we live 2,000 years after the time of the crucifixion and the ascension of Jesus to heaven, that we're referred to as disciples. Um, we did a, a series of studies, uh, time flies, maybe a few years ago now, on discipleship. And Nate and I, on Wednesday nights, we share the teaching and we do what we usually do uh, when we're going through a book of the Bible. That particular time, we're going through a topic, so we had no idea where each one was going. And we never sit down. Um, we just really trust the Spirit to lead us. But we never sit down and say, I'm going to deal with this aspect of discipleship. You deal with that. We just kind of, you know, whatever comes to heart, you study it, you teach it. I'll teach what I want to teach. If they overlap, you know, that's fine. And it always amazes me how, because it's the same spirit and it's the same word, how it's always complementing itself. The word of God is always complementing. It's always confirming itself. But when you look at the disciples of Jesus and, and uh, we think, you know, Jesus, he could have called anyone to be his disciple. I'm talking about the 12 now. We know that there were many that were referred to as disciples. We'll see that when we get to John chapter 6, where we read that many of the disciples turned back and followed him no more. So speaking of the, the 12, you would think, you know, I, I think of, again, the day in which we live. A guy decides he's going to go pioneer church. So in order to pioneer church, he needs a budget. I remember one time we got a letter from a pastor. He was pastoring a church down in Phoenix, Arizona. He came from this area. He was asking 
for donations for his church plant. He had a, a breakdown of what money he would need. It was like $150,000 to do a church plant. Uh, he needed you know, to rent the facility. He needed, I mean, he even had down there um, orange vest for the parking, <laughs> for the, par the parking ministry. And I'm thinking to myself, you've got to be kidding. You have no idea if anything's going to happen when you get down to two, uh, Phoenix, Arizona, you know. I was thinking, I kind of laughed when I got the letter. I remember my budget, our budget, when we started this church. It was a bar stool. And then I had uh, bought 15, uh, spent $15 on some wood to build a little podium. We met in our living room <laughs> when the children were back in the bedroom. When we outgrew that, then we rented a facility that we could afford, which wasn't much, and from place to place to place, you know. And Anyway, I think that sometimes we think, well, you know, maybe if Jesus would have gone to the rabbinical schools, it would have been better. But rather he goes and he calls you know, from our perspective, the blue-collar worker. I gave the example at the first service, you know, because we don't, we don't live in a fishing town, you know what I mean, uh, you know, as a business here. But um, I almost could imagine Jesus, if it was a modern-day scenario, maybe he goes by the, the auto shop and he, and he call, calls a mechanic who's working there and the... And the Mechanic pulls out the rag, the rag out of the back of his pocket. You know, mechanics always have those rags in the back of their pocket. And they wipe off the grease that they could wipe off. And I kind of picture, you know, come and follow me. And I'll make you a mechanic of hearts. I don't, I don't know what he would say, you know. And he just picture the guy wiping and maybe dropping the cloth and following Jesus. I mean, that's what it would be like today. Just regular guys. Oh, it would have been wonderful to be with Jesus. You know, guys... Today, everything is kind of broken down into little, uh, neat little books and little formulas, you know. Um, how to be a disciple of Jesus Christ in 20 easy steps. Yeah. <laughs> and, and I'll tell you, if you ever find a book like that, I'm sure there are many books like that, but, but if you were to find them, I wouldn't waste the time to read it because when you look at the scriptures, you know what we see? We see Jesus discipling his disciples, training his disciples by them simply being with him. Um, when I was a young man, I you know, always had a heart for ministry. And um, my pastor, we were in Grass Valley, and my pastor um, was always asked to go and to speak at other Calvary chapels in the area. And many times he would do his Sunday morning services. And then if there was a Sunday night service at another Calvary Chapel and he was invited to speak, he would go. And I would always tag along. And um, I remember one time we were driving out to, I don't know where we were going, some little town, Marysville, I think. Not Marysville, Washington, Marysville, California. And uh, we're driving out there and, and he said, Danny, you know, I'm going to teach the same teaching that you've heard <laughs> two or three times already this morning. Don't you get bored of coming? I said, you know what, Mark, I just want to come with you. I just want to be around ministry. 
And, um, and I would go and I'd be like a fly on the wall, you know. Uh, there's a lot of ministry, and a lot of people don't understand this. The ministry is not what happens behind the pulpit. This is just a fraction of the ministry that happens. The ministry that happens many times happens uh, before, you know, the bulk of the people even show up. When maybe there's one or two that come in, they have a need. They, or after everyone has pretty much left the building. Many times that's when ministry is taking place. And I would listen and I would watch. And, and I had no idea at the time that I was being trained. I was kind of, just by being with him and, and being involved in ministry, I was being trained for ministry. And, and that was true for the disciples. You know, let's go on, verse 26. So Jesus came again to Canaan of Galilee, where he had made the water wine. And there was a certain nobleman whose son was sick at Capernaum. So they're in Cana, but the fellow's from Capernaum. And when he heard, that is the nobleman, that Jesus had come out of Judah, or Judea, into Galilee, he went to him and implored him to come down and heal his son, for he was at the point of death. Boy, you feel for the guy, don't you? He was a nobleman, so what does that mean? Well, some have suggested that the, the term nobleman could also be translated kingsman. Kingsman. Who was the king at that time in Israel? It was King Antipas. So was he a member? Was he a part of the court of, of King Antipas? I mean, King Antipas wasn't a good guy. None of the Herod, Herods were. But... Um, but was he a, a part of his court? We don't know. Was he a Jew or a Gentile? We don't know. In fact, today we would say, what difference does it make if he was a Jew or a Gentile? Because that's how we think today. This is why when we read the scriptures, we need to kind of get into their sandals so that we can kind of try to think the way they're thinking. It might not be a big deal for us if he was a Jew or a Gentile, but I guarantee you it was a big deal for the disciples. And Jesus was training the disciples. I mean, I'm telling you guys, when Jesus sent the disciples into this Samaritan city to buy food, of all places, go in and buy food, he was training them. When they came back and saw him speaking to a, a woman of Samaria, he was training them. When, when they said, Lord, eat, eat. And he said, I, I've, I've already eaten. I, 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 there's nourishment that you don't know about. And Jesus looked up and he says, don't you say that, I forget the exact, uh, you know, four months until the harvest. Look, the fields are white unto harvest as the Samaritans are coming out with their white turbans on their head. This was training for the disciples. They're learning. They're saying, man, what is going on here? I thought we hated them. And I thought they hated us. And now Jesus is saying that they're the harvest? You know, guys, they were being trained for their future ministry. You guys... No, most of you know, most of you will remember, but it probably slipped by you. It slipped by me until Nate pointed it out last week. 
But in Acts chapter 1, verse 8, you guys know it, but you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you shall be witnesses to me. Do you know how it goes? In Jerusalem, Judea, and Samaria, and the end of the earth. Listen, if the encounter with the Samaritan woman never would have happened, the disciples still would be in that mode of, Lord, would you like us to call down fire from heaven like Elijah did and torch these people? Remember, what that's what they said about the Samaritans. You want us to torch them? Jesus should have said, go ahead, boys, let it go. You know, like they really had authority. They called down fire from heaven. But, but that was the mindset. And when the scripture is, is showing us these things, he's showing us the heart and the attitude of the people. And this is real life. Guys, you know, Christ changes everything. It's true. If you've truly placed your faith in Christ, it changes everything. A racist person who comes to faith in Christ is no longer racist because you see people as God sees people. We're created in his image. Who? Which ones? <laughs> we. Do you see what I'm saying? So our whole thinking changes when we come to faith in Christ. He was a nobleman. I, I, I think that he probably was a man of power and wealth because they seem to go together. I think they've always gone together. If you have power, you have wealth. And, and he might have, and we don't know for sure because we're not given the information, but he, he might have lived an easy life up to the point until his son became sick. There's a, um, you know, guys, we're all at different walks of life. When we were in Santa Barbara, um, you know, there's jokes about Santa Barbara. The Santa Barbara is not a reality. The Santa Barbara is a figment of your imagination because no place could be that perfect, especially in Southern California, you know. And, um, you know, in Santa Barbara, when we lived there back in the 70s, Lower State Street was kind of run down. I mean, now Lower State Street is just beautiful, you know, gorgeous. You know, all the rich people, all, you, you know, name somebody famous. You know, when, when we lived there, I, I worked, uh, and we would go into the homes. We went into the home of uh, um, Kenny Loggins. He had two houses side by side. One was a studio, the other one he lived in. Uh, the Beach Boys, we went to, Tracy and I drove by the Mission, and uh, we walked through this house. It was called the Snail House. It was covered, kind of a weird shape house. And it was right next door to Mike Love, a friend of ours, was his uh, daughter's school teacher. I mean, it's just kind of like where John Travolta of Michael, <laughs> Michael, help me with Michael. Michael, <laughs> what was his name? Michael Jackson. You know, they all live there. And so we're sitting there, we're looking, and we're saying, we're talking to this guy, and we're, we're, Tracy said, how do young couples, how do young families live in Santa Barbara? And he said, you know, there's 20,000 people who commute into Santa Barbara who live in Oxnard, Ventura, Goleta, you know, outside of Santa Barbara, because they cannot afford to, to live there with the wages that they're making. He said... Um, the, uh, the cheapest house in Santa Barbara is over a million dollars. 
He said, um, we're looking at the, the Riviera in Santa Barbara. They have all of these homes on the mountainside that face the ocean. He said, do you know that the homes above, as, as the Riviera starts the incline, all of those homes have lost their fire insurance because it's too high of a risk. We said, how in the world could you have a house uh, and not have fire insurance, you know? That must mean that everyone that lives on the Riviera owns their house, it's not mortgaged, you know? And as you just kind of listen to these statistics and everything else, and sometimes you feel like, boy, there are the haves and the have-nots in this world. But you know what, guys? There's that, that equalizer. And I'm telling you, that when, when things are bad, when you're in need, when you have a condition, it doesn't matter how much you have. And I, and I think that this fellow, I mean, if he was truly a man of means, he probably hired the best physicians to take care of his son, but his son wasn't getting any better. He was just getting worse. He was at the point of death. His son was dying in spite of his position, in spite of his assets. There was nothing he could do. He was desperate, and so he came to Jesus. And sometimes that's what it takes for a person to get desperate before they come to Jesus. And I, I think, you know, it'd be better to just come to him by faith now. <laughs> but whatever it takes. You know, it's like, uh, I just want to focus on the love of the Lord, the love of the Lord, the love of the Lord. Well, you could do that. God is love. God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. It's the love of God that, that you know, draws me to him. Okay, that's wonderful. Praise the Lord. But there's plenty of scriptures dealing with judgment. Oh, I don't want the judgment. You're trying to scare me. Well, whatever works. I mean, both are true. God is love, but God is also a God of justice. And so both are true. And uh, I wouldn't wait until you're desperate to call out to him. I think that it's worth noting that when the man, the nobleman, came to Jesus, he did something that he probably had never, ever done in his life before. He begged. It says he implored him to come down and heal his son. And then we see the Lord's response. Verse 48, And Jesus said to him, Unless you people see signs and wonders, you will by no means believe. And the nobleman said, Sir, come down before my son dies. It's almost as if the, the, the father, the desperate father, he's unmoved by this, which is, again, interesting, isn't it? Remember the Syrophoenician woman? It's not right to give the children's bread to the dogs. She didn't say, uh, I beg your pardon, are you calling me a dog? She was a Gentile. She didn't say that. It's like the eagle goes out the window. When you're desperate, it's like, I don't, I don't care. I need you. I need help. I wonder, you know, how much the ego keeps people from the kingdom of God because they just won't bow the knee. They won't admit that there's, they're sinners. And it says, look what it says. Jesus, his response, verse 50, it moves quickly. Jesus said to him, go your way, your son lives. So the man believed the word that Jesus spoke to him and he went his way. And I'll come back to verse 51 in a moment. You know, guys, uh, 
you look at this, and, and I'd like to point out, because, you know, I get accused quite often as a pastor who's always got my mouth going of, you know, sometimes you're harsh and that's not loving and where's the love, brother, you know, type of thing. And I always wonder when people say things like that, and I don't doubt that I can, you know, I, I, I need improvement. I think we all do. But I wonder to myself when a person is constantly offended by words that are spoken and they are Christians, I wonder, have you ever really read the words of Jesus? Because there is no one who said more offensive things than Jesus. I mean, he did. And you look at this and you say, Lord, cut him some slack. <laughs> I mean, the guy's desperate. His son's dying. And you rebuked him. Well, I don't think he was rebuking the man. It says, unless you people see signs and wonders, you will by no means believe. The word people, you'll note that it's italics. It's added. It was added in, to the text. I don't think that Jesus was rebuking the desperate father. I think that Jesus was rebuking the people of Capernaum. And I base that upon the word of God. Because not here, but in Matthew's gospel account, Jesus said, and you, Capernaum, who are exalted to heaven will be brought down to Hades. For if the mighty works which were done in you had been done in Sodom, it would have remained until this day. Jesus said, listen, if Sodom saw what you've seen in Capernaum, Capernaum, they'd still be here. Sodom would still be here today because they would have repented. This man was from Capernaum. You wonder, were there others that traveled with him? You know, guys, when you read the scriptures, it seems apparent that people had time on their hands, right? It wasn't like, I can't make it. I got a clock out at five, you know. It just seemed like people had time on their hands. And I can imagine, you know, the, the nobleman, he gets up, and, and I doubt that he traveled alone, especially if he was a man of authority. And as his little entourage are leaving Capernaum, maybe someone says, sir, where are you going? I'm going to talk to Jesus. He's in Canaan, 20 miles away. I'm going to talk to him. My son, as you know, he's sick, and it's getting worse, and he's on to death. And I almost wonder if people of the village said, we'll go with you. We'll go with you. And maybe when Jesus, as he said this to the man, he's looking at all these people from Capernaum. And he's saying, you know, you're always looking for a sign or wonder. Prove it, Lord. Prove it. There's a danger in that. When we had prayed for about three years about going out and pioneering a church, and we loved our church in Grass Valley, and I taught a Bible study in Penn Valley, every Thursday night, we'd drive down to Penn Valley. We'd have the babysitter come over and watch our kiddos. And I'd say to Tracy, now, babe, you know that we're leaving here one day. And we're going to go Pioneer Church. And I don't know where it's going to be, but it's not going to be here, you know. And Tracy would say, yeah, you know, gosh. Because she couldn't even imagine. You know what I mean? It was just so, it was something the Lord put in my heart, but it wasn't necessarily in her heart. Until it was, you know, 
yes, go. And then Tracy was more gung-ho than I was. Then I began to get cold feet a little bit. Anyway, we came up. Contacted different Calvary pastors. He said, oh, this city and that city and this location and that location. We met with different, from Oregon up to Washington. We'd never been to Washington State. We're in Mount Vernon. We spend the night in Mount Vernon. I'm thinking to myself, what are we doing up here? Gosh, this is not good. I... So the next day, we're going to drive over to Whidbey Island. I, we had no idea what Whidbey Island was. When we went over the double bridges, we thought we were on Whidbey Island. And, um, and when we got to Deception Pass, it was like, oh, wow, this is amazing, you know. And, and we met with a pastor who was pastoring at Calvary at the South End. And we knew him from Sacramento. He lived in Sacramento. We lived in Grass Valley. And he said, Dan, you know, it's one island, but it's two different worlds, the South and the North. And he said, we have some people up in the North End. They come down to church. It's a long drive down in uh, Freeland, I think they were meeting at the time. And he said, I want to encourage you to come up. And we talked with some folks. We went to a little home Bible study. He said, oh, please come up. We want you to pioneer church here. We decided we're going to do it. We're going to go. So we started heading back. We have our Dodge van, and uh, it breaks down in Portland. I mean, right in the city. And uh, so we have to stay there overnight. Had to stay a second night, you know. We're missing the kids. I'm, I'm starting to think, you know, when you're away from home, and especially in a city that you don't know, and you feel kind of trapped, and I'm thinking, well, maybe, maybe I'm not hearing from the Lord. Maybe I'm not supposed to do this. And we get down to, uh, back to Grass Valley, and, and we, uh, our Thursday night Bible study, we met in a park during the summer. And so I showed up early, and, and I went down to a little creek there, and I was just kind of squatting down by the park or the creek, and I said, Lord, if you want us to go up to Oak Harbor to pioneer a church, would you cause a fish to jump out of the water? <laughs> I said it. And then I was so embarrassed. I mean, I, I, it like came out, and I was so embarrassed that, you know, what a, what a lame thing, this thing. And just as I was getting my apology out, this fish goes, yeah. So then, of course, you start to reason, well, maybe, maybe there was a mosquito on that water, the surface of the water. Anyway, we moved up. We started the church. Oh, those were hard, hard years. There were many times we wanted to run back home. It was difficult. I was working as a carpenter, working on a job, one of the worst carpentry jobs I've ever worked on, and I've worked on some bad ones. And I was just miserable. And Tracy came to the job site. She'd never come to the job site. That was just kind of an understanding. Please don't ever come to the job site. You come to the job site, I'm probably going to fight some of the guys that I work with, because they're gonna say, say some crude thing about you, like they do every other woman, which, take note of that, ladies, walking by job sites. There's a lot of crude guys out there. She came by, she said, Danny, I've been praying all morning. You gotta quit this job. This isn't the job for you. I said, I, I've never quit a job in my life. I mean, it's like I've always had a family to support. She goes, please, Danny, just pray about it, just pray about it. She drives off. I'm sitting there in lunch break, Lord, if you want me to quit this job, pray that a seagull lands on the hood of my car. 
I've never heard an audible voice from the Lord, but I'll tell you, I heard an inner voice at that time. The Lord was like, knock it off. <laughs> knock it off. Walk by faith. And you know, guys, there are times that the Lord blesses us with signs and things like that, but we don't live our lives that way. I went too long. You could come up and lead us in the last song. I encourage you to read the, the remainder of it. I think it's wonderful to see the faith of this desperate father. Jesus simply says, go your way. The boy's healed, you know, and he goes his way. AJ pointed out to me between services, you know, I'm always encouraging the young men and women of the church to study the word of God, and I like it when they come forward and they receive something in their own personal study. And he says, you know, it's interesting that it says, when the father asked, he said, well, when did the fever leave? When did he get better? And they said, the se yesterday at the seventh hour. And he said, you know, I was reading uh, some commentators and they were suggesting that the man's faith was seen in the fact that he delayed, that he didn't even start heading home until the next day. No, that's what some of those commentators suggested. I said, well, that's interesting, AJ. I said, I, I always read that thinking, you know, he left and then maybe he met because it's 20 miles away, it would take some time, that he, he met uh, his servants coming with the good news, maybe the next day, sometime the next day. Whatever it might be, the man had faith. And we could have that same faith. And faith comes by the word of God. It's not by experiences. It's not. Thank God for the experiences. But a faith based upon experiences will always let you down. A faith based upon the word of God that never changes. You guys know this, that everything we see around us, everything the Bible says is passing away. Every, absolutely everything. It's passing away. But the word of God remains forever. And so when we place our faith in, and it's not just the written script, you know, it's the one who spoke it. If he says it, it's true. We live in strange times, but we live in the most exciting times of church history because we're watching things wrap up. And I'll tell you, I, I, am, I would not want to live at any other time in church history as we are today. It's scary sometimes, but again, if you have faith, in the Lord, and you're studying the scriptures, you know what the, the end result is. You know, there's a lot of doom and gloom that's coming, the tribulation period and everything. You don't want to be here for that. But there's a lot of blessings, like the blessed hope, the catching away of God's church. We're not subject to the wrath of God. He's going to call his church home. You want to make sure that you're part of his church. Not Calvary Chapel Oak Harbor but the body of Christ. So would you stand with me?